JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. Andy Moore, Automotive Group Hotline. Stephen Holder of ESPN.com. He does join us right now. I'll spare you the uh, Mellencamp question that I just read off from James right there. And uh, start, start with, with Jeff Saturday. Uh, there was gloating going on by Colts owner Jim Ursay this time last week. How do we feel about uh, the, the next week and what transpired on Sunday on an interim basis as head coach with Jeff Saturday in mind, Stephen? Yeah, um, probably along the lines of what I, <clears throat> excuse me, about what I expected. Now, they had a chance to win the game. Everybody saw it. We know that. And I, I got a lot of, you know, we played hard vibes. But, <laughs> in fact, you speak, speaking of Jim Irsay, he kind of referenced that in a tweet earlier today. And I think that was kind of a high road tweet uh, to Nick Sirianni, maybe, you know, uh, we beat a qual or excuse me, we lost to a really quality team, you know, congratulations to the Eagles. I don't know. I think that was a, a, a maybe I'm reaching, but maybe that was a veiled reference to Sirianni and his statements, whatever. The point is, uh, look, the, the whole idea that, you know, we lost by one to, to a really good team, maybe the best team in the NFL. All right. I hear that, but I also hear that, you had a golden opportunity uh, against a, a team that has lowest point output of the season. And the Colts offense is exactly what we thought it was. They proved that once again. And as it turns out, playing the Raiders is not a good measuring stick for your football team. <laughs> okay. That's, that's what I learned yesterday. And it's just kind of where they are right now. It's uh, Stephen Holder of ESPN.com that they are, exactly what we thought they were, regardless of the head coach. Now, mind you, the change was necessary. But as far as, you know, a, a right. transformation right. yeah, and right. evolution, I, I don't know how many people expected that. But that still, that does not counteract the disappointment that you would have in that game yesterday because they were given or earned, I'll show you, I'll say that, earned so many different opportunities to really take a hold and put that game away and they were just unable to do it. And that is incredibly frustrating, regardless of the point of the season and regardless of how the season has gone to this point. Yeah, you know what's interesting? And I think this is correct. I should know this off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure Matt Ryan hasn't committed a turnover in either of the past two games, which, you know, if you would have asked me that uh, about six weeks ago, I would have told you that is a tremendous victory, right? Because they were coming with such frequency early in the season that 
they just had nowhere to go. There was no, there was no way out because they couldn't stop turning the ball over. Well, you could argue for the past two weeks, they have. Now, there have been other turnovers, but that Matt Ryan at least hasn't turned the ball over. That's, that's a tremendous victory. And yet, and yet, yesterday, they found other ways on offense uh, to, to short-circuit themselves. And it was, it was penalties. It was a lack of execution. All the things that Jeff Saturday talked about, and he's 100% right. It was they found creative ways. To, to stunt themselves on offense, you know? So, hey, if that, maybe that's progress. Maybe we've turned the page. They're no longer the league leader in turnovers. They're finding other ways to lose now on offense. So, <laughs> I don't know if you want to celebrate that or, or bemoan it, but that's the reality. Uh, look, they, they did everything. They had every opportunity, as you said, every opportunity. But they just continued to find just stupid ways to beat themselves. And, and that's just beyond just the straight up uh, individual battles that they did lose up front, which continues to be a problem. All right, Steven, that final Jalen Hurts touchdown run untouched. That was the difference in the game. Why in the world, if everybody in the stadium, and I'm assuming everybody in the press box and nearly everywhere thought that that was coming, why could the Colts not even close to be prepared for that? Who, who made the mistake? Whose fault is it? And how does something like that happen? I know Jalen Hurts is maybe the front runner for the MVP, but I thought that was a joke, the way that final play was handled. That was my initial reaction, I, 100%. Now, I think that since then, I've learned some things that actually helped me understand it better. So I'll do okay. my best to explain this. So, all right, in fact, in fact, uh, you know, Dan Orlovsky just got done explaining this on NFL Live, and he's right about this because the players said the same thing. Uh, one of the things the players said, Zaire Franklin and others, is that they weren't looking for the quarterback draw. I know well, your reaction to that is, well, why the hell weren't you? And the answer is because, they, the Eagles are very smart about self-scouting. And generally, out of that formation they were in, they never, according to the tape, they never run the quarterback draw out of that formation. So the Colts had done their homework, and they were looking for it, and they said, you know what? No, it's not coming because they don't run it out of this, out of this setup. Now, obviously, it could still happen, but they had no history of doing it, so they fooled them. And the, the, the Eagles were smart enough to know that and – and ran it, you know, understanding what their tendencies were. So great on them, uh, just schematically and, and game planning wise. Now, the other thing is they, the way they lined up in, in terms of the receiver, the receiving threats on that play was it cleared the middle of the field. So Jalen Hurts is looking for the throw initially for a split second there. And when it's not wide open, he knows his best option at that point is to run it. And so that's it's particularly with the wide open middle of the field. Now, I mean, Zaire Franklin is the one guy who would have had a shot at him. But as, as Zaire pointed out, he had sort of a, a stack of receivers that, you know, he had to be partly responsible for. And so had he, had he gone after Jalen Hurts, maybe they make an easy throw for a touchdown too. So it's the perfect play. They really just, they caught him at the right time in the right defense and with the perfect call. And it looked terrible, but I don't think it was quite as bad as it looked. It really was just a great call by the Eagles and the Colts just in the wrong defense at the wrong time.
In, in a counter, though, can we not say if there's anybody that you're going to concentrate on on that field yeah. is the guy under center? And so, I, 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 mean, it, I mean, you're talking about you know, the seas parting, and he dances untouched into the end zone. In, in really the words, paraphrasing, of Matt Taylor, the voice of the Colts, that's, I, I guess that's what I'm looking at more than anything else. And maybe I'm making that way too simple, but it seems like in that moment, regardless of the play call or caught off guard, that would be a, a train of logical thought in your approach to that play. Yeah, and I think you know, that's got to that, that's gotta come from, from the sideline, too, to some extent in terms of how you call it. Because I think guys are trying to execute their particular assignment, right? And if, if your assignment is, all right, you got that particular guy, that re- receiver, that tight end, whatever, and if you don't get him, you know, that's on you in the film session the next day, right, if that guy scores a touchdown. So I understand the preoccupation there. Now, let's talk about it from, from the play-calling standpoint. Now, the Colts had spied Jalen Hurts at times throughout that game. In fact, it paid off a couple of times. Now, the problem with that is you can't do it all day long. There are some guys like Lamar Jackson, for example. Maybe you spy him throughout a game more so than you do Jalen Hurts, and here is why. Because the, the Ravens don't have the skill position talent that the Eagles do. So if you go and you spy and you dedicate a man to Jalen Hurts, well, now you're giving something up on the perimeter because they have so much talent on the outside that it's going to stress those other 10 guys on defense. So what I'm saying is, it's not a defense. What I'm saying is the Eagles got a really good situation because they have an X-factor quarterback and then they have this, this litany of, of skill position talent that can just slaughter you. So you got to make some tough choices. And you're going to make the wrong choice sometimes. That's why I'm, t- I'm telling you that team's going to be tough to defend. What the Colts did yesterday, frankly, is amazing when you think about it. The fact that they even held them to 17, because that combination of of Hertz being able to create on his own, and then combine that with the skill position guys, I mean, that is just a nightmare scenario. So. Tough situation, man. They're, they're going to beat a lot of teams down the stretch. See, uh, seems like that Zaire Franklin didn't have the uh, best final drive defensively of his existence either. Correct? No, tough, tough situation for him, man. And I'd have to, I need to go back and look at the the defensive pass interference play. I'm not sure what transpired before his actual committing the penalty. I mean, I, I don't think that you draw it up with him. Uh, being one-on-one with a receiver, you know, 30 yards down the field. That's not the way you want it to go. But the other observation I do have on that play, just from watching it live, I haven't watched it on film, but but watching it live, here's one thing I can tell you right now. The problem with the Colts' defense, the single biggest problem I have, and I love their defense, but the single biggest problem I have is the lack of consistent pass rush. And it showed up on that play because what happened? You know, we're five seconds in by that point, and you're asking a, you know, a 240-pound linebacker to run down the field with a guy. Well, that's that's a losing scenario. That's a losing matchup for the Colts. And so, because Jalen Hurts had so much time to create and to let the play develop, you know, you're left with a, a desperate situation where now a linebacker is just trying to prevent a touchdown. And honestly, that's what he was doing there was. He, he didn't have time to go back and find the football, so he just said, well, i got to tackle this guy so that it doesn't turn into six. And I think it's the right play at that time, but it looks terrible 
because it's it's the best option out of a bunch of bad options, right? So uh, just a bad play all around. Do you uh, agree in the, the final two minutes offensively with Deion Jackson being in there instead of Jonathan Taylor? Yeah, you know, this is where the Naheem Hines trade kind of comes back to bite him a little bit. You know, he was their two-minute back. And now the argument with Naheem Hines is he's a better pass-catching back, right? He, he was clearly a former receiver in college. You know all those things, right? So I was fine with him being the two-minute back, even despite the existence of Jonathan Taylor. Now, when you – when you talk about Deion Jackson, though, in that situation, I'm less inclined to take Jonathan Taylor off the field in that scenario when the option is Deion Jackson. Now, Deion Jackson has shown himself to be a, a decent receiver. I'll give him that. I think he had the 10-catch game, right, a few weeks ago. So, I mean, yeah. he has hands, and, and he has shown that. And, and Jonathan Taylor, in Deion Jackson's defense, Jonathan Taylor has had some struggles in pass protection this year, which I did not anticipate. But – well, Deion Jackson doesn't do it any better either. I like him too, but, but, but he doesn't do it any better. Yeah. Right. But that was going to be the, the counter argument is right. now if, if the argument was that Jackson was better at it, I'd, I'd say, all right, maybe you got something there, but I don't know that he okay. is. So, so I guess what I'm saying is I don't love it. And I think it's a fair question. And, and Jeff was asked about that Jeff Saturday. And, you know, he kind of made it, made it clear. Like he's kind of their pass catching guy, the, the two minute guy right now. But you don't have to have a two-minute running back, okay? There's no rule that says you have to do that. You can just play your regular running back. So uh, that would be the argument for me. I guess my argument, and see if I'm wrong on this. It, to me, if you're a team that really struggles with having you know, threats offensively, and I know that he fumbled, and I know he hasn't had the year like he had a year ago, but again, Defensive coordinators, coaches, players still recognize him as a higher-level offensive threat in the NFL. Why would you not want that out there, especially when things matter the most, is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you want, you want and need guys who can stress the defense. And the, the truth of the matter is the Colts don't have enough of those as it is. I, I think they have – more than we probably give them credit for, but some of those are wide receivers and the passing game is having problems right now because of protection, right? So, so you can't even get the ball to those guys in some instances, you know, Jonathan Taylor's a guy you, you don't have to, you know, have pass protection for you can hand him the ball. You can maybe check it down to him, right? I mean, there's different ways he can hurt you that, that are not as dependent on the offensive line, I guess. So, I, I agree with you. Is what I'm saying. I agree. I mean, yeah. he's, they they have they only have so many weapons. I I think their their primary weapons. We know what they are, right? They're they're Taylor. I think the the three wide receivers in whatever order: Pierce, Campbell, and Pittman. And that's pretty much it, right? I mean, those are the guys who, if you turn the tape on, those are the guys you're worried about. <laughs> you know, and you don't have you only have a handful, and you're taking one off the field. I think. And that's certainly questionable. Stephen Holder of ESPN.com is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. How much of this team being unable to go down the field is just all on the Matt Ryan can't get it down the field throwing? How much of that? I, I actually have a little problem with that narrative. Because, well, listen, I am not going to sit here and try to sell anybody 
on on a Matt Ryan having some sort of Patrick Mahomes type of arm. Okay, like come on. But I, I do think that that is intermediate throws. I think they're fine. You know what I mean? Like I don't I don't think they're necessarily above average, but I think they're fine. I, they're good enough. Now, deep ball, eh? But they're not taking a bunch of shots anyway. <laughs> I mean, how how long are you? I mean, how many times are you going to ask Matt Ryan, even if you think his arm's great? How many times under the current circumstances are you going to ask him to take a seven-step drop and hang back in that pocket behind that offensive line, right? So they're not doing that anyway. I think really their way of sp- stretching the field right now is two things. Run after the catch, and they got a little bit of that early in the game. That definitely diminished as the game went on, though. And then the other avenue is is throwing the ball with those intermediate crossers and, and things like that. I mean, they hit a few of those. They they're, they have it in them to do it. Uh, but, you know, you've you got to win some matchups, and you, you've got to protect for a couple of seconds. And I don't know. It's, it's tough right now. But I agree. Listen, he, he's not – this is not, you know, 28-year-old Matt Ryan, whose arm was fine. I mean, I don't think he's ever – you know, had some sort of, you know, cannon necessarily. But his arm was, was certainly very acceptable uh, in his prime. He's not that anymore, right? I get that. But at the intermediate throws, he can make those, and, and he can make them fairly accurate too. What he's got to do, though, he's got to be on time. Sometimes I think the, this offense is just so, so herky-jerky right now at times that, you know, for a really accurate quarterback, he, he may be a little late at times here and there. And I don't know, there's lots of reasons for that, but, but that's, that's as much of a problem as anything rather than just the ability to throw it you know, to that particular distance, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, this, this offense is just a major malfunction, really, all the way around. I mean, really we can, you, know, I, you can point it, you know, whether you agree or, or disagree with the arm strength, that, that plays a role, offensive lines played a role, lack of production, a little uh, bit the of threat. Yeah, yeah, it um, and it's not going away either. I mean, it, it's and not that's, going that's away. This this is who they are. That's the thing, you know. If I I wish I could tell people, you know, if they just fix this, it'll be okay. Yeah, there's, there's no such thing, and and it's the same. The same applies to the coaching, right? There's no fix. You don't fire this coach and it's fixed, or change the play calling and it's fixed. It ain't the play calling. It ain't the play caller. <laughs> it's. They got some fundamental issues, man. I mean, you, I'm probably late on this. I'm sure you saw the Brian Baldinger video. Yeah. I retweeted yeah. that this morning. If you haven't seen it as a listener, I mean, it's on my Twitter feed. Go find it. It's just it's, – it's demoralizing, man. You know? It's just yeah. Ryan Kelly yeah. getting his ass kicked over and over and over. It's just hard to watch. And I don't know what you do with that. You know what I mean? I don't know what you do with that. The pressure – is right in your face as a quarterback. It's the worst place to have pressure because what do quarterbacks do when they get edge rush? They step up in the pocket, right? And Matt Ryan is fully capable and willing and able to do that and does do that. But what, what happens when you step up and the defensive tackle's right in your face? Well, it doesn't matter, right? So it, it, it cuts off the safety valve for the quarterback when you're getting interior pressure. You can't even step up in the – in the pocket, which is the automatic fallback when you get pressure off the edge, which, by the way, you're constantly getting because your left tackle is getting on-the-job training. <laughs> okay, and, well, and, and, right and, and I, I think in closing, i got to run here, Stephen, but yeah. 
Uh, the, the whole Ballard building of this is gone awry so badly. Yeah. It, this is not just a setback for this year, but we're going to view this in the offseason as even more of a setback. That's my belief. I appreciate you, man, more than you know. Thanks for hopping on. All right, man, you got it. Andy Moore, Automotive Group Pipeline from the morning show, Kevin Inquiry. 7 until 10 a.m. weekday mornings here on The Fan. It is Jake Query. So, you are you a soccer guy at all? Um, I'm a, Look, I hate to say this because people will get mad about it, but I'm a soccer guy during – I do like the the World Cup just because I enjoy having – you know, it's like the Olympics. I enjoy having oh, yeah. it on, able to I watch agree. it during the day. To say that I follow it actively and, you know, follow the – the international play over the course of the ensuing years in between is completely disingenuous. Um, I just watched essentially the entire second half of that match. You know, soccer to me, I mean, it is, it is an exciting sport because it's a little bit nerve wracking because it feels like a momentum sport where 90% of the time, the momentum never crests. Um, but my understanding is, and people who follow it more actively than I would be able to, to answer this more clearly but I thought I heard them say, and maybe it was speculation, but I thought I heard them say that essentially by tying Wales, the United States will have to defeat England if they were to give themselves the best chance to advance out of the pool. I, I could be totally wrong in that, out of that group. I could be totally wrong in that. But if that's the case, I would think that's, um, you know, a tall task. But but we shall see. I mean, we shall see, right? Uh John Buzzard says, <laughs> I think the tie is only good if the Team USA is in the AFC South. Yeah, so I got no that kidding. going, yeah. No question about it. You know, the one thing I will say is Wales has like a total population of 3.2 million people, and they had like uh-huh. an entire stadium of people in red gets, to use the term. And I'm like, so what, like did half the nation of Wales go to Qatar? Is that how this works? Or, or Qatar? I, I mean – you know, the, the the rumor is, we talked about this this morning because I watched Ecuador yesterday and there were a ton of fans from Ecuador there. And I'm like, really? Like, how easy is it to get from Ecuador to Qatar and how inexpensive is that? But apparently the government there is paying people like, hey, you want to act like you're a soccer fan? Come on out. And they're paying them to sit in the stands and wear the, the uniforms and the jerseys of different teams, the, the kits, if you will. So who knows? Who knows? Interesting stuff. Yeah, just curious. All right, let's get to the Colts from yesterday. The Colts yesterday just basically evolved once again to what they were, right? I mean, they in that game, that chaotic week, you get a win over a bad team, and then yesterday was basically, in a nutshell, what we have seen this season, and it starts with the lack of offense. Zero threat, a defense that lets you hang, and then, you know, ultimately you have – you know, an elite-level player offensively that the Eagles have and the Colts don't, there's the difference in the game. Well, if people are just getting in their cars and they did not get a chance to see the U.S. and Wales and they're wondering what happened, I would tell them to look at yesterday's Colts game because one team kind of set the tone early and seemed to be in control for the better part of the match and then – all of a sudden, it's not the result you want. Difference being, of course, a tie versus a loss. But, John, you and I were sitting there together yesterday at one point, and it was 13-3. to And I think I can't remember if I said it to you or you said to me, like, yeah. this feels like a 20-point game. Like, they felt 
firmly in control. But I think both of us knew that at some point water might find its level, and that's what happened. And part of it was, you know, you could say in the past with the Colts perhaps that they got too conservative, or, you know, there are different things that you can say. Look, give credit to Philadelphia. I mean, Philadelphia basically took Jonathan Taylor out of the game, and then at that point you're forcing the Colts to try to beat you through the air. And, you know, with a quarterback that – that, that needs time and receivers that have to get open and an offensive line that, that maybe didn't regress back to its worst form, but certainly regressed from a week ago. You had a feeling you knew, you knew when they missed, when they had Paris Campbell down, put them in the position of first and goal and they had to settle for a field goal. You knew at that point, when you looked at the score and you looked at the clock that Philly had time and sure enough, I mean, that third and eight, the seas opened up and everybody in the place knew they were probably going to go through a quarterback draw. And that's exactly what they did. Rick yep. Venturi, my understanding is. Well, I mean, everybody knew about the Colts defense. How did the Colts not know that defensively? They, they looked you like know, that they were either me, asleep or completely unprepared. You said to me with about, about probably five minutes before that, you turned around to me and you said, man, that defense is gassed. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. Because they were asked to do an awful lot of beer in the field an awful long time. The, you know, I go back to the famous Jim Mora playoffs rant when he started out and he said, well, I'll tell you what, don't blame that loss on the defense. And yesterday you can certainly blame that final play on the defense, no doubt about it. But with the way they played, they should not have been in that situation because their defense is playing at a very high level. They just unfortunately have on the other side of the ball an offense that has done nothing to improve itself this year that – is still going through the same Mickey Mouse crap on the offensive line with the same cast of Looney Tune characters and the same guy that keeps telling us that everything's a-okay. So you know what? What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a new result every time. I mean, I guess we're all insane. I had a caller, Jake, a couple of calls ago, had uh, got on me because he felt I was too negative and that this team offensively, in this case, they were close. I, I don't think they're close at all right now. I think they have a lot of work to do, a lot of things that may take, to me, even more than looking at next year. Is that just a, a completely negative way to look at it, or is that more in line with what you believe to be the truth? No, I think it's realistic. Uh, John, you and I have had this conversation a lot over the course of the last seven or eight weeks on the air, and I hope people understand this. There is, at times, perhaps I err on trying too hard to be objective, and maybe I do that to the point of, of being negative. But I know what it means. Look, I grew up here. You grew up in the area. We know what it means to people around here to have a competitive football team. We know what it means to see this city collectively get together and, and watch them play well in the play. So my point being, trust me, we want them to do well. It's better for you and I in every aspect for the mental health of our friends, for the socialization of this city, for the interest of our job, we, we would prefer to see the Colts win. Any thought to that that is to the contrary is totally disingenuous. But we also have to be realistic. And the reality is it is a team this year that has underperformed to expectation. It is a team that has underperformed to expectation because of areas that 
that we talked about as areas of concern at the beginning of the year where the narrative of those that spoke of those concerns from the top were we were told that that was that was being negative and it wasn't realistic and in terms our reality became reality and i don't like saying that any more than anybody else but it's realistic our job is to discuss and opine and and narrate on what we saw and what people are feeling and i feel like we have a responsibility and that chair with that microphone to be able to voice for the people that are watching the football game that, that want their voice heard of their frustration. That's what our job is. And so we speak that. And I said the same thing to you a week ago. It's not negative. I'm, I'm sorry that it comes off as negative. It is not rooted with intention of being negative, but rather rooted with intention of being realistic. And at this point, the reality is that the season so far has been more negative than positive. Well, I mean, really, the the most excitement surrounding this team has taken place off the field. Now, you can look up and down these games this year, and in most of which, uh, even in wins, have been rather boring. The only thing that's had any air of excitement whatsoever really has been this off-the-field chaos that we've endured for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, you're right. I thought yesterday probably the most exciting thing, which was the most poignant about their season, as you and I sat there and watched it, only because the the food line at halftime was too long in the media center. So we sat down in our seats and they brought out some guy to field punts. And you made the the point of, can they not like at least give the guy a punt within 15 yards of where he's standing? And it was Uh, fairly, it it, it was fairly fitting of the Colts season, right? Like they bring a fan out and the fans expecting it to go one way. And then in reality, the fan is sitting there with their head in a circle because it went three different directions than what they expected. They thought the coach would be different at the beginning of the year. They thought the quarterback would be different for two weeks than it was, and they thought the results would be different. It was perfectly fitting of the cold season, and truthfully, watching that poor guy go out there as a sacrificial lamb might have been the most exciting thing that happened yesterday. Parks Frazier went last week being a darling of play calling to not so much yesterday as well. What was the biggest problem, certainly in those short field situations, that led to either three points or a missed field goal and then ultimately not producing enough to get a win where they had ample opportunity? Well, I think part of the problem is, in his defense, I guess, you got to give credit to Philadelphia because Philadelphia took away their biggest their biggest chip, right? Once the threat of the run of Jonathan Taylor, who was sensational at the outset of the game, but once they kind of figured it out and stacked the box against him, then all of a sudden Parks Frazier, one of his, you know, they couldn't run the ball. So once you can't get Jonathan Taylor running the ball, then all of a sudden you've got to be more creative in what you're doing. That's number one. And then I think that forces you just by human nature to try to get creative and try to come up with ways, you know, to, to, to do things against, the grain of what you wanted to do. I mean, they, they tried popping Jonathan Taylor to the outside instead of just going up the middle for whatever reason, the interior of their line continues to be a disaster in terms of, of protection. So I think if, if I were going to critique Parks Frazier in game number two, I would defend him by simply saying a lot of what he was, what he had at his disposal in week one against the Raiders who are, you know, a sieve against the run that was taken away. And so then that limits what you can do to try to get things opened up. Well, and again, what was so disappointing is that first drive, you could not have asked for anything better offensively in that first drive. 
and how they executed getting down the field. And then, you know, certainly I don't Philly adjustments, whatever, it was a struggle. I mean, an absolute struggle the rest of the way. And I think sometimes that is when you're overcome by frustration, one of the key reasons why as well. Yeah, I mean, look, it, the, the, I think the biggest disappointment of that game and the biggest takeaway for me, John, was, you know, again, the Colts kind of hit a wall there where they weren't getting much going, but you felt like they were still in control of the game because their defense played so well. But they just relied on them and had to rely on them for too long and, and too much to the point where it came down to the last five or six minutes of that game, and you really felt like Philadelphia was going to be able to move the football, and you were not confident that Indianapolis was going to be able to. And they left points on the board, and when it was 13, I'm trying to think of what the score was, but, you know, it was 16-10 there. And you just knew, you looked at, you know, you looked at the clock and you're like, okay, I mean, it's 13-10, they go for the field goal, they go up 16-10, and you knew there was just under five minutes to go the timing, you know, I actually was almost surprised that Philadelphia just didn't run the clock down and punch it in on the last play of the game, but it was third and goal from the eight, so they really didn't have a choice at that point once he got pushed back. But I don't know. I just felt like the last five minutes of that game kind of played out as you anticipated, and it was befitting of their season. And as I said this morning, John, the irony being – the Colts did yesterday what we kept expecting the, and asking the Pacers to do from the beginning of their season. Play well, be competitive, be fun, be exciting, but then lose and help yourself in the draft. Well, you know, the Colts aren't trying to help themselves in the draft at this point, but what sucks about it is they're probably not going to make the playoffs, even though they're not as far out of the wild card as one thinks. And because of that reason, I think they're going to keep pushing forward and they're going to keep winning games and they're going to miss the playoffs and then they're going to draft like 17th. And what the hell good does that do you? So, Jay Query, the morning show, Kevin and Query, 7 until 10 a.m. with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Yeah, you look at you know, defensively, and, and especially on that final play for Jalen Hurts, there's no way in the world with Jalen Hurts on that team and knowing where that ball was going to go. And he, we talked about it up there, you know, the, the defense maybe being gassed. But that somebody was asleep on that. I don't know how in the world that could happen. Untouched like that? I think in it that was, fashion think on that Kevin, third down? I think Kevin pointed out this morning on that touchdown run that it was Zaire Franklin that seemed to bite yeah. the wrong way. And that just, that's what, that's, you know, the seas just parted, right? I mean, yeah. he was the closest person to Jalen Hurts when he scored was Blue. Literally. Yeah. yeah. That was the closest. That was the closest Colt well, to him was the mascot. What what's scary about that, Jake, is that the entire stadium knew what the hell was going to happen right there. No question. No question. You got to be smarter than the stadium, don't you? <laughs> don't you have to execute better than the stadium? I would think. The fan base. You can't have the fan base being smarter. I mean, I been mean, smarter. Honestly, media fan base. We, you, there's been some smarts real good around here with stuff I that mean, haven't worked out for the Colts. That's the same fan base that's been clamoring for wideouts and an offensive line. So what the heck do they know? I don't know. Nothing. Nothing, I guess. What do you think about Nick Sirianni? I understood it. You know, given what he felt about Frank Reich, I kind of understood that. I still can't find anybody that actually was there that could tell me what possibly that he said. But I can understand why you would be motivated with an axe to grind 
uh, and maybe have a little bit, a little bit of get back for one of your major mentors and, and how he was treated. Now, again, it was the right thing to do. Don't get me wrong. Frank had to go. I'm not suggesting that whatsoever, but I don't think you can that easily if you're Nick Sirianni take that emotional cord out of it, and that's what you saw at the end of the game yesterday. I When I first saw it, I thought Sirianni was yelling at the Colts fans, and I thought, ew, boy. Then I realized I think he was, like, yelling, you know, along with the Eagles fans that were standing there. And then he was super energetic. Yeah. And I'll get to the comments in a minute. I will say this. The way that we interpret and digest behavior from coaches and players on fields is oftentimes determined upon what jersey they're wearing. And by that I mean if there were, and I don't know how many there were, but if there were Colts fans that were irritated by Nick Sirianni's gestures and enthusiasm and excitement at the end of that game, probably 50% of those people, if they're Colts fans, are also fans of IU football, and they watch Tom Allen run around like an absolute crazed lunatic when Indiana beat Michigan State and probably didn't have an issue with it. But when Nick Sirianni wins, he's a bad guy. Well, again, it's all relative to the jersey. Now, having said that, in the postgame press conference, I thought Sirianni made very good points. I agree with you that I totally understood where he was coming from, and I respect um, and admire his loyalty towards Frank Reich. I thought at the end he pushed it a little bit when he said it was a sweet win, and I'm paraphrasing, a sweet win based on everything that's gone on with this franchise for the last few weeks. That seemed like a little bit more of a dig as opposed to just it was a sweet win. No, no. Yeah, there was a dig. There was no doubt a dig. There was a dig at the owner. That was a, yeah. that was an absolute dig at Jim Irsay. Yeah, and I thought that was probably, you know, look, man, it's a really incestuous business and it's a really incestuous world, and I realize that a lot of those those guys forgive and forget. I probably wouldn't have gone that far, but I can respect the conviction and the the passion and you know, the bravery in saying it. I mean, I can respect it. Doesn't mean I agree with it, but I can respect it. Well, you better celebrate while you can because the moment things don't go right there, he's going to have a fan base right up his rear end. So That is exactly you, correct. You, you is, have to and, take – I mean, Yeah, yeah. So you, you have to take those moments, Jake, when you can, when you're directing that team in that city because it's – there are very few, I would guess, unlike it. So you got to take those moments where you can celebrate it because the bad stuff is never going to be too far away with that group. Just in general, and when I said they will, I don't mean that as a knock on Nick Sirianni. What I mean is every coach. I mean, every coach in every sport, eventually at some point, the tide turns a little bit and you find yourself suddenly being criticized, and especially in Philly, man. Philly's a whole different animal, so – you're right. Enjoy it while while it's there. I thought he went a little far when he said, you know, when he was critical of the franchise in general. I, I mean, I again, I commend his bravery in saying it, but I probably would have pumped the brakes a little before that. So, Jay Query, the morning show, Kevin and Query, weekday mornings here on 93.5 and 107.5, the fan. He was on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Before I let you go, Pacers in Orlando, round number two, the Pacers getting that win uh, in that first game. They meet coming up again tonight. Ma- major thoughts on, on the Pacers and the direction that they're going right now. And, and to me, people say all the time that they're doing the wrong thing by winning. And I, I'm sorry if I struggle with the separation here. 
Because I think a large part of a young team's growth is something that they have done really well and better in years past here recently, and that is close games. They are closing games, and for the life of me, I can't get on board with the jackassery of many saying that was a bad game because they won. What the hell's going on here? Yeah, I think at the beginning of the year, unless they were selling us a bill of goods, I mean, I'll just tell it straight up. I mean, the Pacers at the beginning of the year essentially reached out to people who were going to be covering them this year and said, look, just let the fan base know to be patient here because, you know, we're, we're starting this thing at, at the bottom. And they didn't come out directly and say we're tanking, but they certainly insinuated it. And then I think what happened is they realized whether it's that other teams are also trying to find themselves out, whether the schedule's been a little bit light, maybe a little of both, but they've got good young players and they've got good young talent. And I think what they, they thought was, you know what, for right now it's probably important for Benedict Matherin to gain early confidence and see what it's like to win. It's probably important for Tyrese Halliburton to gain confidence coming from Sacramento and see what it's like to win and give them that taste of winning and win streaks and crowd and, and, and positivity early in their career. And that's what, you know, I think they're ahead of schedule. I don't think that that means that they're going to make some strong playoff push this year, but I think the reality is that they are not going to be a 25-win team, which I think they were bracing for that possibility. I think, honestly, John, they just started playing and thought, you know what, this group seems to like each other and play with one another and have an athleticism and a style of play that might be ahead of where we thought. So let's see what we've got here. And over the course of the year, whether they make a trade at the deadline or whatever else, they retool it or, 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 or you know, tweak it a little bit. But I just think that they – I think they've come out and been pleasantly surprised, to be quite frankful, to be quite frank. And I, and look, like I said, I think the schedule is going to balance itself out a little bit where they're going to hit some some tougher games. But for right now, it's enjoyable. I think people are optimistic about it. I think people are realistic that this isn't the year that they're going to make some deep run. But boy, in two or three years, they could be really, really good. And a big part of that might well be the fact that they learned early on how to win and it didn't rattle anybody's confidence at the infant, you know, the infant stages of their career. I really, really like watching Halliburton and Miles play together. A little two-man game and high ball pick and roll situations. No question. Is is that is that something you think that Isaiah Jackson is going to be able to do? Is that one of the reasons why that, you know, everybody besides the fact that he either needs to be extended or traded or whatever? or because they just don't like him in general. Is that one of the, the reasons why we all expect him to be traded? Can Isaiah Jackson become that in that two-man? Because you know, I love that two-man game between those two. I agree with that, and I think that they think – I think they're two different players. Isaiah Jackson is almost entirely above the rim, you know, on the block above the rim. And, you know, Kevin Pritchard has said, like, look, coming into the year, he said, look, what we need for Miles Turner is for Miles to shoot the ball. We need Miles to shoot the ball and then be able – to, to play in a half court as well and work off the lobs from Halliburton. And that's, and that's exactly what he's done. And, and miles turn people forget, man, miles Turner is not 35 years old. I, I I'm probably the lone wolf in this regard, but I'm not 100% convinced that they are looking to immediately shop miles Turner. I think if they get an indication that miles Turner may want to stay here, they may go extension or at least offer one. I, that may be totally naive of me. 
But I think they were really curious to see how he would play with Halliburton. And so far, those results, very good. Uh, the one thing he said is how his numbers would change consistently if he were playing the five and you didn't have that combination of Sabonis and Turner out there. And you know what? At least for a small sample size, he is, he's definitely done that. I, I don't know. I, I would love it. I would love it for my timeline alone if that were to occur. Um, right. I just don't know that it is. My timeline is pretty funny every night on uh, any game when you're talking about 33, but I think that would be really enjoyable on a day in which something like that were to happen. What you guys got working tomorrow? Uh, we'll actually talk a lot about the Pacers because we'll talk about tonight's game and then with Minnesota coming in, Michael Grady's doing TV for the T-Wolves now, so he'll join us to break down that matchup. And, of course, we'll continue talking about the Colts as well. We might even mix in some soccer. Yeah, no, people are telling me, honestly, this is from, let me see, Andy Waugh is a big-time Colts fan from Ireland. Okay. And this is what he wrote. Cracking game. Brilliant first half, but the USA legs went at the half and lucky to get that draw at the end. Good result. Qualification between Wales and USA will come down to how much each team score against Iran and lose by against England. So that is what Andy Waugh, and I'm assuming he knows, says, or at least in this case suggests, how – USA can still now, I know this. advance. I know that cracking means like excellent or exciting. I know that much. That, that's I, I don't speak fluent Scottish, Irish, British, but but I know cracking means that. That was a cracking of a match. Once upon a time, actually twice, Andy Waugh uh, has gone to England. This is the only place I've ever seen them. They may have them in Canada. But he sent me two cases of peanut butter Kit Kats that I only oh, yeah. saw – one time in my life in England when I was there with the Colts, and he sent me a couple of cases. Peanut butter Kit Kats are freaking awesome, Jake. Awesome. Um, Canada, I, I have found them in Canada for Scotty Johnson, our, our co-worker. And yep. I will tell you this. I had my friends from Australia sent me, uh, like, a lifetime supply of Tim Tams, which are kind of like Kit Kats but more in a cookie variation. Yeah. They are the greatest thing ever. I'm going to bring them to Thanksgiving dinner. My family's going to think I'm the greatest, like, sweet, you know, sweets supplier of all time. I am a um, eater at the hotel. Wherever I go, I normally, like, get something at a convenience store. I don't go to a restaurant. I get something at the convenience store and eat it in the hotel. And I went to the convenience store in, uh, in London, and, and actually it was in uh, Piccadilly Circus. And I went there and got uh, – peanut butter Kit Kats. They were awesome. So Andy Waugh twice has sent me a case, and I truly appreciate it. Awesome stuff. I, I've never understood why the candy companies make different candies in Canada and England. I was like, why don't yeah. they bring those here? Is there some survey out there? They do some study? I mean, they would make a, pardon the pun, a mint if they, like, like arrows, which are like mint bubble chocolate candy bars. You can only get them in Canada. They're, they're awesome. I have no idea why they don't sell them here, especially with, like, is, I mean, America, like, is excessive <laughs> eaters on everything. Yeah, exactly. I don't get it. Ketchup, you have can, you ever had ketchup-flavored potato chips? No, uh-uh. Oh, no. you can only get them in Canada. Ketchup-flavored Lay's. I'm telling you, I have no off switch with them. They're unbelievable. They're so good. Every time I come back from Canada, I've got, like, an entire bag of nothing but 
ketchup. I, I spent, I went to the grocery store in Canada for, in Toronto for the IndyCar race and spent $63 on potato chips. What's the, uh, na- what's the nastiest flavor of potato chip you've ever had? I got one in mind right here, too. Go ahead. Boy, that's okay. They have, uh, over there, they have a bacon-flavored chip. I forget what they call it, Jamone or whatever, and it was, it was way too salty. Not good. So that would be mine. I think they're called Utes, U-T-Z, the potato chip and snack company. And okay. I don't know if they're still on sale. Produced, this is like years ago, a crab-flavored potato chip. <laughs> and it was, yeah. it was really, pass. really nasty. <laughs> really nasty. Hard, hard pass on that one. <laughs> Crab-flavored <laughs> potato chip. I go, they're, they are huge, like in Massachusetts, probably, and that's it, right? <laughs> I left them in a car. Okay. They were not okay. coming off the shelves. All right, man, I appreciate you. Uh, 7 until All 10 right, a.m. on the show tomorrow morning. Jake Query, Kevin and Query, weekday mornings right here on The Fan. 